Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We are going way beyond mere eating and drinking this hour. I am on a mission to find the most exciting places, new experiences, and emerging trends, and I bring them all to you every Sunday. Right here, you can join celebrity chefs, renowned winemakers, and Epicurean insiders for the most delicious radio conversation you'll find, and you can elevate your taste buds because here we are rich on flavor. I believe that art comes in all forms. I just happen to love the form you can eat. And every Sunday, this is your culinary playground where I am serving up seconds to feed your soul at chefjamie.com. And you can become a friend, please, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So today actually does mark the last day of summer as we segue into fall. And I started a little bit early because I picked up a, a butternut squash this past week at the supermarket. And when I do my food shopping and I'm buying the start of fall or autumn squash, as they're called, it's inevitable that while I'm in the produce section loading squash into my cart, because I do love squash, I am often stopped by a fellow shopper with a look of bewilderment. And the question that is most frequently asked is, what do you do with those things? So if you don't know what to do with that bounty of exotic shaped gourds that are starting Albeit they are year-round available, but they're starting to become more prominently placed in the produce section of your favorite supermarket, then you need to really listen in to this quick rundown of Squash 101. Now, they're actually called winter squashes. That's the category, and they're available all year. But their peak season is early fall, right into the early point of winter and when winter breaks. And Squash has thick skin and a hollow cavity and very dense flesh, or at least the good ones do. So you always want to select squash that has dull covered skin because the dull color on the outside of a squash is an indication that it's actually ripe. If you find a squash that happens to be shiny, that is usually a sign to the grower that it's not ripe and ready to pick yet. So again, dull colored skin is the way to go when choosing squash. And a firm shell is really important. You always want to avoid choosing squash with damaged spots or cracks. And then just like a watermelon, you always want to choose a squash that is heavy for its size. So usually I'll compare, let's say, two different spaghetti squash or butternut squash, one in each hand, and I'll pick the one that weighs more or that feels heavier to me. It's usually your best bet to know that you're getting a ripe and ready or what we call a mature squash. Now, I happen to love squash because I think it lends itself to multiple methods and preparations. You can bake a squash or roast a squash, really. You can actually microwave a squash really well. And not that I'm condoning the use of the microwave, but if you get in a pinch and you don't want to fire up the oven, I will tell you, I have been known to make spaghetti squash in the microwave and it works out really just fine. You can't fit much in there, but you do it the same way that you would in the oven, right? You cut the squash in half and this really 
applies to most preparations. And you scrape out the seeds and any of the threads in the center. Um, A grapefruit spoon works really well for this, uh, just FYI. And then discard the seeds, unless, of course, it's a pumpkin and you're going to make cinnamon sugar or spicy chili pumpkin seeds. And then you use the squash itself cut side down to roast it. And I like to lay it cut side down, both pieces, and I can usually do two squash or four halves at a time on a baking sheet or a cookie sheet with at least a half inch side or rim all the way around. And I like to pour some water onto the cookie sheet so that the squash actually steams during the roasting process and stays really lovely and moist. Now you can add the water to the cookie sheet before you take it to the oven or to be a little more careful and cautious, you place the cookie sheet in the oven once it's preheated with the squash cut side down and you bring a measuring cup over and you pour water on to the sheet. Um, just enough so that it will steam and so that the pan doesn't scorch. I usually do, by the way, use uh, a silpat mat for roasting squash. And that's the simplest method of all. Now, you can always boil squash, but then you lose all that great flavor in the water. You can braise it, which I happen to love to add slices of acorn squash to a beef stew skin on and all. Now you do have to cut through that hard exterior, but once you get your slices or your wedges or your chunks, throw it into a stew and let it steam and simmer and braise in there and you really do get fabulous flavor. Now, of course, you can make a delicious tempura just like the Japanese restaurants that you love. And then some squash can actually be grated raw into salad. And those are usually more of the spring or summer squash as we call them. Now, here's a quick reference guide. These squash, by the way, are all very affordable and usually sold by the pound. Now, we all love butternut, long and pear-shaped, right? That sweet orange flesh. And you can actually find it cubed or peeled and cubed for you already in the grocery section in a bag. Super simple and ready to roast in cubes or throw into a saute or steam even in the microwave. Now, I love acorn squash. It is truly scrumptious to me because it has that deep yellow flesh, but it has a dark green ridged outer skin. And I like that fibrous skin. So I roast my acorn squash skin on. Then of course, you'll see a golden nugget. You'll see a turban, even a delicata. Um, All of them sort of mild in flavor. In fact, the golden nugget um, referred to as an oriental pumpkin, the turban looks like a colorful squash shaped like a turban. And the delicata is um, cream and green on the outside and really golden on the inside and mellow and delicious. Now, um, I happen to love kabucha squash, which is actually considered a Japanese pumpkin. Most weigh about three or four or five pounds, though, so they tend to be rather big. But if you haven't played with one before, they're really fun. And then, of course, there is the ultimate favorite, the spaghetti squash. And, of course, the flesh of the squash, when it's cooked, actually forms like spaghetti strands. And I have been known to substitute for pasta, throw on some tomato sauce, a sprinkling of uh, smoked or fresh or traditional mozzarella cheese and melted it down. You can throw on ratatouille. I happen to love spaghetti squash for a meatless Monday meal. Um, and I've been known to stuff it with lots of different delicious 
things, um, but I do find it particularly scrumptious and it's my go-to squash year round. Now, when it comes to simple preparations, you can take any squash after you've cleaned it of its seeds and its threads and you can slice it into say half inch thick slices and you can roast it simply with maple syrup or honey and some lime zest and lime juice and a drizzle of olive oil if you like, salt and pepper, and you have the ultimate scrumptious side dish. Now, you could always make a squash soup. I have recipes posted at chefjamie.com. You could stuff the squash with sweet rice and currants and vegetables, of course. And there are wonderful ways that you can start to intertwine squash into your fall and autumn menus. So do check out chefjamie.com. Let me know what you're making. And if you need any additional squash inspiration, you can always email me, jamie at chefjamie.com. Okay, here's the food news that you need to know this week. A recent study found that topping a salad with an egg may help your body absorb antioxidants and it will help reduce inflammation. So I'm all in. Put a fried egg on top or crumble a a hard-boiled egg rather for extra protein and, um, and hopefully we'll all be feeling better and living better soon. Did you know that there is a reusable silicone water bottle that crushes like a soda can? Yes, I saw it this past week. It's just 20 bucks per bottle. It compresses to like just an inch and you can throw it in your purse or your briefcase or your backpack. And I thought it was really cool. So to learn more, you go to hideawaybottle.com, but it's H-Y-D- awaybottle.com. H-Y-D, hideawaybottle.com. And lastly, people who bring reusable bags to the grocery store are more likely to buy junk food. Isn't that crazy? Well, researchers chose to share the statistics and the new research and have proven this past week that those who are eco-friendly and responsible subconsciously buy sweet or salty treats to reward themselves. So as I'm reading this interesting information, I realize there's a problem. I buy the cheater items and I am not particularly proud to tell you, but I don't even bring reusable bags to the store. So it's definitely my bad. I don't know, reusable bags, candy fix, you decide. And do not touch your dial because coming up just next, in fact, I am delighted that Chef Hugh Atchison is stopping by. He is the talk of the South, and you'll hear about what he's cooking now, plus an upcoming James Beard Award event that you are invited to. Also, Amelia Saltzman is stopping by as we come to the close of Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. Aloshana to you. We are celebrating Yom Kippur and talking about seasonal Jewish cooking. In fact, I've known Amelia a really long time, and she is a really great cook, so you won't want to miss the conversation. Plus, he is my sweet husband, the wine genius that I love. And we're talking about the price of vino, in fact, when my husband, Craig Bennett, wine industry pro, stops by just before the end of the hour. So do stay tuned because we will raise your wine IQ. Oh, and so much more. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio, having a blast this Sunday, sharing fabulous food with you. Don't touch your dial. We'll be right back.
Talking all things fresh and fabulous for fall. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I am always thrilled when this famed chef drops by to dish. He is Hugh Atchison, chef, restaurateur, and author. And you know him as the owner and chef of four phenomenal restaurants in Athens, Atlanta, and Savannah, Georgia. He is all about eating fresh and from the farmer's market and locally and seasonally, of course. And he is a James Beard Award winner, was named Best New Chef by Food & Wine magazine, and competed in Bravo's Top Chef Masters. He stops by to share his talent and passion, and I am delighted to have you back. Hi, Chef. Yeah, it's good to be here, Jamie. Oh, How are thank you? Thank you. I'm well, and you? I am awesome. Yes, that you are. I'm always in the food news. I love that you're always being talked about. I think that it really, and, and all good things, by the way, I think it really says something to the uh, to the depth and the extent of the impact that you and your cooking style has on our ever-growing food world. Um, and I love that you were one of the first to eat with the seasons. So renew our knowledge of your food philosophy, please. You know, I think I just try and buy as much locally as I can and enjoy what's coming out of my local area as much as possible. And- sure have people believe in their own backyard again. And, uh, I think that's what we're just trying to do every day. Yeah, no, and, and you're doing it at four restaurants and as you cook across the country and spread the gospel. So highlight fall uh, at the restaurants for us, please. I, you pick a restaurant. Uh, if I pick the season, tell us what we can expect to see, let's say, uh, at uh, the National. The National is going to have always a lot of Middle Eastern inflection in the food, so it's going to be beautiful eggplant baba ganoushes mm. and things like that. Pomegranates will yeah. start popping up, roasted squashes and ferments that we do of different vegetables, lots of radishes this time of year, really beautiful crisp carrots things like that. So nice. it's a really good time. Uh, fall is in, in our part of the country and many parts of the country just to see a lot of different stuff. The farmer's markets are no doubt alive. I love this transition from summer to fall because it starts to feel hardier to me as the weather starts to change. And I love that idea of roots and radishes. So can you inspire us um, if we find, uh, let's say, a bevy of radishes at the farmer's market? There are a multitude of things to to make, to crunch, to eat, right? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people think just radishes as, you know, with butter on a sandwich. But I mean, there's so many ways to use them. And I love roasting radishes um, and the, or shaving them as a simple raw salad with fresh mint and maybe a brown butter vinaigrette, something like that. Mm. So there's just a lot of flexibility that people need to need to realize. I think we put blinders on when we cook often. We just cook with the techniques that we know. Right. Um, and so I just want people to learn something new and realize that cooking is a lot like Lego. The more pieces you have, the more skills you have, the more fun you're going to have. <laughs> okay. We know that that Lego analogy must come from your little ones, the apples of your eye. What are your kids eating now? They're eating what we're eating. They yeah, always good. have. You know, that's the beauty of it. And, you know, sometimes it's Chick-fil-A, but, uh, <laughs> you know, oftentimes, it's, you know, just tonight it'll be a simple steak on the grill. I've got some beautiful New York strips that's from the local beef guy. And then nice. I've got a bunch of uh, different squashes and I've got a butternut squash. I've got some field peas that are frozen this summer and I'll pull those out and I've got some preserved tomatoes that I'll 
fold into those with ample amounts of garlic and fat back and mm. cook those slowly. So they eat pretty well. And then, you know, just uh, well, usually a lot of raw vegetables around the plate and on the side and some good lacinato kale and things like that. Things mm. that are really popping up in this time of fall. Yeah, they, they really do eat well, no doubt. I want to come to your house for dinner. Um, in that last sentence, you mentioned having um, put up, as we call it, some things during the summer, whether it be the peas or um, preserved tomatoes, I think you mentioned. And I think you were a bit before your time for the movement in pickles and fermenting that we're having now, because your second book was all about pickling, right? Yeah, it's called Pick a Pickle, and it was it's 50 fermentation and pickling recipes. And it's just a way to, you know, I mean, a month ago when we got all these peppers and beautiful cayennes and sweet Jimmy Nardellos, and it seems like a, a waste just to have that little window of a week to enjoy those things. It's so true. pickling and preserving just gives you this opportunity to really extend the season. And then you just have this beautiful array of stuff in your pantry that you can pull from at any time and use it as one little base foundation for a new meal each time. So, yeah, we do a lot of beautiful full-sour pickles and bread and butter pickles with all the cucumbers mm-hmm. and really a lot of just really simple stuff as well. So there's uh, there's a good amount of stuff in our pantry and a good amount of stuff in the same way at the restaurant for us to use throughout the year. What is the the base of your best pickle. You mentioned bread and butter, which happens to be one of my favorites. And I love anything that's sweet and spicy. So when I pickle, I have copious amounts of vinegar, uh, sugar, and then some sort of heat source. It could be chilies from the garden or, you know, bottled chili paste, um, because that's the flavor profile I like. And I think that you can uh, cater your pickle brine to exactly what your palate craves, right? So what does your pickle palate crave? You know, if it's a bread and butter recipe, it's going to be definitely a little on the sweet side. Right. But I'm not, I'm more of a savory palate. So I, I, mine are much less sweet than most people's bread and butter styles. So, um, you know, but I like a lot of dense spice flavors and I love the, that flavor of cloves and fenugreek and all that sort of stuff in different mm. pickles. But then my classic like pickle brine is just going to be like dilled Fresh dill stems and fresh uh-huh. garlic, black peppercorn, mustard seeds, cider vinegar, and a little bit of water. Really straight up. Maybe a touch of sugar and obviously salt for the preservative aspect of it. Sure. Nice. Okay. I um, am very grateful to um, have received and posted at chefjamie.com with, by the way, a direct link to hughatchison.com, one of your best fall recipes. And it is definitely quintessential fall. When we start to see all of the onions of many varieties pop up, you make a sweet onion soup with caraway and croutons. Tell us about it. Really simple. I mean, copious amounts of butter, but everything (laughs) in moderation. Right. And it's not too much for but we want to make it full of flavor, and we want to be really good. So that mm. slow cooking of those onions, really lightly caramelizing, but just really long cooking to really exude all those natural sugars that are within those onions. And then it's really just got a touch of cream in it, and then a lot of stock and just a really, really simple soup that's really straightforward, but shows you the beauty and diversity of one sort of flavor um, that can be shown, that can just explain 
explode into just this monstrous, beautiful thing. Um, Chef, will you come back soon and teach us to make a boiled vinaigrette? So quintessentially Southern, but I'd love to learn it in your style. It is so easy and so simple. I'd be happy to come on by and teach you. Okay, well, we look forward to it. Thank you for taking time out to share your passion. Continued success to you. We will see you at 5 and 10 in Athens, the National in Athens, Empire State South in Atlanta, or the Florence in Savannah when you are, of course, behind the stove. And uh, and I wish you a delicious fall. I know it's certainly going to be delicious on your table. Well, thanks, Jamie. We'll yes, look forward course. to seeing you soon. He is Chef Hugh Atchison, chef, restaurateur, and author. And he is no doubt the highlight of Southern talent today. Learn more at HughAtchison.com and find out more about James Beard Foundation's Taste America at jbf.org there is more delicious conversation in your radio right after this don't go away Sipping and savoring this Sunday because this is where knowledge and inspiration is served up. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. So we're taking a fresh look at tradition today as we celebrate Yom Kippur, the Jewish holiday, also known as the Day of Atonement and the holiest day of the year for the Jewish people. Award-winning cookbook author Amelia Saltzman helps everyday cooks make the connection between seasonal, smar-farmed foods and real-life meals. And she cooks Jewish cuisine. I'm always delighted when she joins us live in your radio, and I am proud to call her a longtime friend. Her food is phenomenal. She has elevated Jewish cuisine with multiple award-winning cookbooks. And whether you keep kosher or eat parav or vegan is your style, Jewish food offers a Mediterranean, Middle Eastern, Eastern European approach to cooking, and it really embraces everyone. Amelia's new cookbook release entitled The Seasonal Jewish Kitchen takes you on a beautiful journey through the diverse flavors of Jewish cooking, and she is here to share her newest baby. The book is really stunning, Amelia. So congratulations and welcome back. Thank you so much, Jamie. Of it's course. wonderful to be mm. back with you. And thank you. thank you for that amazing, amazing introduction. I, I love the format of the book and how you break it down. And we'll talk about that. I think the imagery is beautiful as well. And of course, being Jewish, we've always connected. I happen to love that you bring um, Jewish cuisine to the masses. So can you talk about the Jewish calendar and how it influences your seasonal approach? Well, I'm happy to. You know, I, as you know, of course, I've been cooking and teaching the seasonal way, the seasonal approach to our food for many years, and of course, yes, I'm Jewish. And what I really came upon is, is realizing that how we cook during the year and how we approach the holidays are really much more connected than we often think. Hmm. So, for instance, the, the cycle of the Jewish year is very much um, in sync with 
the natural cycles that we think of on an everyday basis. So, for instance, now we're coming into the fall harvest. Right. Well, this is the time, an ending of the past year, which is symbolic of a harvest, right? The ending of a crop season and the beginning of a new year and a new growing season. Mm -hmm. So isn't that interesting Mm. that the Jewish year begins not in January or not in March, which is when the first month of the Jewish calendar is, but in the seventh month, the, the seventh month being like seven, like the Sabbath, the seventh day, um, a time of, of rest, a time of Shabbat, all of these sort of, I don't know, symbolic uh, sensations of how the year passes really come to bear in the Jewish calendar. Hmm. So when I looked at the growing seasons, I like to call them micro-seasons because I think that a two-month period is a much easier way for people to know what they should be looking for in their local farmer's markets, wherever they live. But when I looked at September, October, I realized that that is the same time frame when the Jewish holidays of the new year occur. You know, as you know, the Jewish New Year, uh, the Jewish calendar, sorry, is a lunar one. Right. So it's it's always sort of shape shifting <laughs> right through yes. our our national calendar. It's true. It's true. But but when we look at it in these two month windows, they always sync up perfectly. Yeah, and that's that's what I think is wonderful as much as I love the idea of thinking of, of it on a on a micro, a smaller scale. Uh, the the two month window gives you a grasp of where we're at now. And and I think it does give you sort of a an easier way to menu plan or eat in season or be mindful and conscious of what's fresh now. And September, October are an exciting time because there's a very distinct seasonal change and a hardier change to meals and uh, that segue to me is very apparent. And I've been talking about that over the past few weeks. I'm very excited for fall, not because we've had a, an absolutely outrageously hot summer here in Southern California, but because I'm ready for new flavors and more rustic eating. And um, and that's what excites me. So as we come into September and October, what are you cooking now? Well, this I agree. This is a wonderful time of transition. And I'm I'm relishing hmm. the the sort of shoulder season quality. So I'm I I just made a big batch of matbuha with late season tomatoes, Roma tomatoes, um, which are begging to be turned into a sauce. And matbuha is a spicy, long cooked tomato sauce, a salad quite it can be Tunisian, Moroccan, it's North African. Uh, basically, and very classic in in those cuisines, certainly in the Jewish uh, cooking of those regions as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's the perfect sauce to use as a base for shakshuka. Okay, hold on. We want to know more. Please stay with us. When we come back, there is more right after the break.
Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. I read your book cover to cover. Um, yeah, thank and, you. And loved it. And I found some really interesting dishes that I'm not too proud to tell you I had never heard of. And shakshuka was one of them. This is like a one-pot meal. You know, the Italians call that um, eggs in purgatory. I, I mean, there's something wonderful about breakfast for dinner, but especially when it's savory. Isn't that what this is the, like, Moroccan version of? Absolutely. Or huevos rancheros. Right. There we go. And then leave us with um, with something sweet. Uh, the cheese blend souffle that you make. Oh, is is that impressive? Well, it you know, yes, and and this is just the perfect time of year for it. It's what I would call, in a way, an evergreen recipe. Um, instead of making um, blintzes, you know, folding them, frying them to order, all of that, um, I remembered a great old recipe that was so popular in all the sisterhood cookbooks. Mm-hmm which started with frozen blintzes and a quote-unquote souffle mix, which was basically sour cream, eggs, and a little sugar, poured over, baked, and it puffed up, and it was absolutely delicious. And I thought, what can I do that's easier, delicious? And I made the crepes, which, of course, can be made ahead and even frozen, and then I layered them with a, a uh, farmer cheese filling, very simple, mm. you know, farmer cheese and eggs, and which would be the classic filling, but layered them like lasagna, poured this mixture over the top, put it into an oven, and I'm telling you, it's just sensational. And I don't like my, my sweets too sweet, so um, there's just enough sugar that this dish kind of hovers almost between savory and sweet dessert and brunch mm. and it's it's really a perfect do ahead casserole for let's say a break the fast sure oh. or any time Gorgeous. of the year okay i plan to make it amelia just so you know well, i'm hoping so and i, I will... thought it had your name on it <laughs> it does have my name on it you know me too well i i will personally send you photos of my finished version and we will yes, we will I'm toast you. On it. i want to Okay, we will toast you with cheese blint souffle. And I really can't wait to cook um, from your book so many of the beautiful recipes. I've always appreciated your very modern approach. Um, I very much love your deeply rooted Jewish traditions. And there is no doubt there are really wonderful comparisons being made to you and Jewish food as they have in many years past, uh, associated Marcella Hazan with the best of Italian cooking. And I think it is a, a kind and well-deserved compliment. So congratulations you so to you. This is farm to table cooking in Amelia Saltzman style. It is called the seasonal Jewish kitchen, and it is a wonderfully fresh take on tradition. And it is a book you must bring into your collection. We have excerpted a recipe at chefjamie.com. It links you directly to ameliasaltzman.com. And you can follow Amelia's daily culinary adventures on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and more at Amelia Saltzman. Amelia, let's not go too long, please, before you come back. Um, please come back and share the next season of Jewish Cooking with us. I would love that, I, I would love that, too. Lishana Tova to you. And to you. The book, The Seasonal Jewish Kitchen, my friend, Amelia Saltzman. And more delicious inspiration right after the break. You wouldn't dare touch your dial, now would you? 
Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio as we are about to raise your wine IQ. My wine guru husband is back. Craig Bennett, my love, and a 25-year veteran in the wine industry joins me once again. His education in viticulture at UC Davis, his vast knowledge, and his tremendous passion make him the perfect wine expert to weigh in today since we're talking about the price of wine. So pour yourself a glass and sit down to toast with us. A bottle of Chateau Lafitte Rothschild Bordeaux is considered by many to be the world's greatest wine. In 1985, a 1787 bottle of Lafitte sold at auction for $156,000. It was the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. However, it is rather unclear whether anyone can tell the difference between a $2,000 Lafitte Bordeaux and a $3 table wine. Blind tastings and academic studies have robustly shown that neither amateur consumers or expert judges can consistently differentiate between the fine wine and the less expensive wine. So what is going on in the wine industry? This is the dinner party conversation and the Sunday dinner table conversation that we have at home. If a $10 or a $1,000 bottle all tastes the same in a blind taste test, how do you explain the price tag? Craig Bennett is a partner in Seize the Vine, a passionate wine brokerage firm and the love of my life, and he is here live. Hi, baby. Hello, hello. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot because I know we've talked about it at the dinner table, but I don't think ever for public consumption. Charles Shaw makes what most of the world calls two-buck chuck because it first sold for $1.99 a bottle. And the grapes are grown in California's Central Valley, right? Correct. Really high yield. Big production, and I'll put it out there, uh, in a blind tasting, often drinkable, right? I mean, we know the success of Yellowtail because of that. I sat, and I tell you this story often because it's a very fond memory. I sat with a bunch of wine writers for highfalutin magazines and watched them taste Yellowtail Shiraz against other, let's say, higher-end Syrah, and... The yellowtail in a blind tasting, it, it beat the others out. Yes. So uh, what's your opinion of the bargain brands? The average palate in the United States and across the world generally loves to have things that are consistent. Right. And when things hmm. are consistent. There it is. It doesn't matter regardless of the price. It's just the flavor profile. Right. And a lot of these brands that are out that are doing very, very well, whether it be Kennel Jackson, Chardonnay, whether it be Yellowtail, whether it be Two Buck Chuck, whether it be whatever that's there, a lot of people have a very difficult time with the fact that they really enjoy it. They think it's delicious. And how could something be a hundred times better for the price? (laughs) And that's what we talk about, right? Does it taste a hundred times better no. than the bottle you had last? And if you're a collector, yes. If you like to collect baseball cards or other things, memorabilia, sure. yes. I can understand why or you want to flip it or the top restaurants in the United States want to offer something for those who can afford it. I understand it completely, but I will tell you, I think... There are so many wines that are out there now that are value oriented. And I think it's a trend that 
publications, papers, magazines, whatever are going towards now. I think it's going forward. I, I agree with you. And I think it's going in a really positive light. And there are new and budding winemakers that are making incredible value for incredible, fabulous flavor. And as a consumer, we come down to the same philosophy at the end of most of our wine conversations, you and I, and that is you don't need anyone in the wine business to tell you what to drink. The industry thrives on the anxiety of buying the best wine, but you can buy from whatever shelf of your wine store or supermarket or whatever page of the wine list at your favorite restaurant and you don't have to let anyone tell you that you shouldn't enjoy it. And I will tell you this. Not you should just be happy with it. But I will tell you that you can feel confident telling your local retailer that you respect. I want to spend less than $10 a bottle, $20 a bottle, whatever the threshold is. Right. This is the flavor profile that I like, whether it's dry or not dry or whatever. And I love that. And I think that's something that's going to be a trend for the future. And I, you should very much feel confident to trust the, the local people. Yes, I agree with that. Find me eclectic wines and I'm in. I would toast you anytime. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, he is my wine guru husband. He is Craig Bennett. And uh, this is our uh, dinner table conversation brought to your radio. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of conversation and inspiration. I believe that food is life. So go out there and create and savor yours. I hope that I've inspired you to cook new things this week, and I hope you'll check out ChefJamie.com, where it is my daily goal to feed your soul. I also have podcasts of this program, in case you've missed a show, posted and easily accessible with just one click. www.ChefJamie.com will get you there. And on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, you can find my daily outings, what I'm doing, and of course, what I'm eating under Chef Jamie Gwen. So please do check it out. I'll leave you with my last bite, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration for this Sunday. So you're watching football and you have a sweet tooth, right? Oh, and you need another beer. So what do you make? You make a stout beer float, of course. Football season has no doubt inspired some drinking of Guinness, not only in our home, but I'm sure homes across the U.S. And Guinness and ice cream, they were made for each other. A little bit of bitter, a little bit of sweet. You just scoop some vanilla ice cream into a mug or a glass. You slowly pour Guinness until the glass is full. You stick in a straw or don't even bother because trust me, it is really delicious. Now you could top it with whipped cream and chocolate shavings, but that would just be gilding the lily, right? So go for it. I will post all the necessary items for a very necessary stout beer float on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope to see you here next Sunday when the delicious conversation continues. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I thank you for listening once again, and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.